You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Life doesn't always go the way we want it to go. As this podcast so often reminds us, there are many reasons why we don't make it, either for a short period or for longer stretches of time. In fact, at the beginning of this year, I had to pull out of a dream show that I had been cast in due to vocal issues. Then, a short time later, I'm scrolling through Instagram, and I see a workshop of a musical that I had taken part in a year earlier. Come to find out, while they had kept most of the cast, they did replace a few people, and I was one of them. It was a one-two gut punch to my own confidence, making me doubt myself and whether I had the physical health and even talent to ever really have the career I wanted. For the first guest of this season, I'm talking with a writer who was part of a musical in its beginning stages, but was eventually replaced right before it began to take off and become the hugely iconic Jekyll and Hyde musical we all know. I'm Steve Cuden, and I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I currently live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, though I did spend close to 40 years away from this great city of ours. I currently have just finished adjuncting at Point Park University, where I retired from full-time teaching three years ago. And what I am now is I'm back to being a freelance writer, consultant, producer, would like to direct a little more than I've done. And then I also spend a lot of time on a podcast that I do called Storybeat with Steve Cuden. In fact, Steve's first foray into writing was with another unknown composer and writer in the early 1980s. Frank Waldhorn. And in part one of our conversation, Steve opens up about their personal and professional relationship in ways that he has not done so before publicly. Steve and I actually met last year when he reached out to me via email after listening to an episode of my other podcast, Closing Night, which focuses on theater history. I had done a deep dive on Frank Wildhorn and the 2013 Broadway revival of Jekyll and Hyde. And in it, I actually mentioned the beginning stages of the show and Steve's original contribution to that musical. So he wrote me an email to not only compliment me on the podcast as a whole, but also point out that it's one of the very few times in which the true origins of the show are covered or discussed at all. He went on to write, quote, the fact that you not only gave me credit several times, while actually pronouncing my name correctly, was a great joy to hear. This simply does not happen with any frequency. I truly, deeply appreciate you doing the research and giving the show's early history a bit of coverage and recognition. Well, that began a series of emails back and forth that eventually led me to invite him onto this podcast to share his side of the story a side of the story that Frank Wildhorn himself doesn't really talk about in his own interviews. You could call me naive. That would be the best way to say it. I was completely wet behind the ears. I didn't know what I was doing. I, again, this is me falling into things. I didn't understand what was going on behind the scenes. And so... Uh, from that perspective, if this were to happen today, things would have turned out very differently. Welcome and thank you for joining me for the first episode of Season 8 here on Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning theater podcast hosted by yours truly, Patrick Oliver Jones, an actor and singer for more than 30 years. Every week, you'll hear fellow creatives as they bring us three stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships, as well as their answers to the final five questions that offer lessons we can all learn from. Subscribers will get additional audition stories as well as early access to the episodes. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe, donate, and learn more about this podcast. Again, that's why I'll never make it.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. 
Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, welcome, Steve. It is such a pleasure to meet you. We've been corresponding for a while now, so it's great to have you on the podcast and getting a chance to talk to you today. Oh, it's um, my great pleasure pleasure and privilege to be here with you. Now, certainly one thing that you and I share in common is that we both have our own podcast. We talk to creatives, we bring them on, we pummel them with questions and try to get <laughs> as, as much as we can out of them. What was it that led you into podcasting? It seems like everyone got into it, but what specifically led you into it? Well, that's uh, that was just a, one of those weird quirks of fate in my particular life. I've had many of them where you know, I'm, I'm not looking for something and something comes my way while working at Point Park University uh, in 2017, I believe it was. It might have been 2016. They opened a new facility there called the Center for Media Innovation. And uh, they had within it a brand new TV studio, a brand new radio studio, a, a photographic studio and classrooms. And the person that ran the facility put out a call to all the professors in the school. Would anyone like to do a podcast? Well, I didn't know whether I wanted to do a podcast or not. And I thought about it. And the only time I'd ever interviewed anybody, because obviously you can do podcasts in all kinds of different ways. You can do storytelling. You can do fact-based things. There's lots of different ways to do it. But my keen interest would have been in telling stories or how to be in the entertainment industry, that kind of thing. The only interview experience I'd ever had is about, oh, six months to a year prior to that, by great good fortune, uh, Brian Cranston had been in Pittsburgh shooting the movie Last Flag Flying. And a good friend of mine named Javier Grajeda, who I'd gone to school with, Javier, who plays Juan Bolsa in both Breaking Bad and in Better Call Saul, used to be Brian Cranston's roommate. And so I called Javier. And I said, do you think Brian would come over to school and talk to people? And he said, I don't know. I'll ask him. And about 20 minutes later, he texts me back and says he, he's happy to do it. So I got Brian Cranston to come over to Point Park and I interviewed him live in front of about 250 people, mostly students and some faculty. And I got a taste for it right then and there. So when the call came out from the Center for Media Innovation, I thought, what can I do? And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I'm the one only professor, I think, who raised their hand and said, okay, I'll do a podcast. And then, well, how am I going to do anything? Well, by that time, I had written two books, one called Beating Broadway and Beating Hollywood, both on how to write, how to create scripts or um, librettos, etc. And I thought, I'll do a show, I'll keep the theme of beat or beating, because it's about beats, storytelling beats. I thought I'll keep that theme and I'll do something called story beat. And I will talk to people about their creative process because that fascinated me and still does. Why do you do this? How do you do this? Like, just like we're talking about right now. And so I started to gather up information and I booked my first guest, which was um, my, my dear friend, Wendy Peeney, who created the long running 40 plus year graphic novel series called ElfQuest. And she came on the show and then I started to line up more friends and I, you know, found my way into just being an interviewer without having a clue, no training, didn't, not trained on the equipment, didn't know how to cut anything, didn't know audio, didn't know anything. I mean, I was as green as you can get, but here we are seven years later and I just finished my 281st episode. So mm -hmm. 
I feel yeah, like I, I just passed the uh, the 300 mark just a, Ooh, a few episodes yay. ago. So it's uh, I, I I feel you. Yeah. Yeah. Listening to some of those first interviews, I had a co-host that first season. But once it became just me, yeah, it's a little daunting to come up with these questions, to come up with wh what are you going to talk about? You're trying to listen and think at the same time. And so you're trying to have a conversation, but at the same time, you're trying to sound authoritative and ask these really important questions. <laughs> it really is the trick to it, I think, is is are the questions the the key to being a really good teacher i believe and many others do too is not so much what you're telling students but the questions you're asking them so that they think and uh that is part of the process of the podcast i did i don't know if you do this or not in your podcast but Early on, I had a conversation with Andy Conti, in fact, because he had been, a, at that point, a very long-time reporter. And he said to me something that I just didn't even occur to me. He said to me, you do have sort of your own normal set of questions that you ask, don't you? And I thought, what? You mean I could have a set of questions? And so if you listen to enough of my podcasts, you'll realize I do focus on certain areas over and over and over again, mm -hmm. because those are the ones that I think are important and interest me the most. And so there are certain questions that come up every single week in different forms. They don't necessarily come up as the exact same wording, but they are sort of covering the same area. So I found that to be very useful that I could have a, I have a long list of questions that I use repeatedly. And sometimes I get to them in a show and many times I don't. I've got about a hundred questions typically. Wow. I spend a lot of time massaging those questions so that they fit the guests. But the areas of the questions remain similar. Exactly, exactly. Well, getting to story number one, we'll dive into the questions that I have prepared for you. <laughs> we actually met because my other podcast, Closing Night, a theater history podcast focused on Jekyll and Hyde and its origin story, and obviously Frank Wildhorn. But then I discovered your name, a name I was not familiar with, and discovered your early association with the musical. And I'm so grateful that you wanted to come on and talk about this, because I don't think a lot of people know Steve Cuden or that name. So it's great to get to talk to you. When it comes to Frank Wildhorn, how did the two of you meet and get to know each other? So when I graduated from college, which was the University of Southern California, I graduated in January of 1978. And within a few months, I had done a bunch of lighting design at while I was still a student at USC. And while I was there, I had become friendly with the tech director of the whole uh, theater school, which is a guy named Jack Pelton. And Jack knew that I had an interest in lighting and I was, you know, gainfully unemployed as most students are when they come out of school. And he said, would you like to be the master electrician for the theater department? I said, well, that's interesting. And it was a job. It was labor. Um, it paid something, which was good. And so for the next two years, I was the master electrician in the drama department at USC. And part of my responsibilities were to install or put up the lighting of every show that went through three different theaters there. And uh, also frequently, if they had a, a larger kind of performance or a more important kind of performance, they would ask me to operate the computerized lighting board because I was pretty good at it. And so in the, at the end of um, 1978, going into 1979, there was this young man, he was, I guess, 18 or 19 years old, that came to USC as a student in either history or philosophy, I'm still never sure what it was, but he was a composer. And he went and had a meeting with the person that ran the drama department, which was a guy named Rick Toskin. And Rick took him and introduced him to the man who was the artistic director of the program, someone many will be familiar with, John Houseman. Mm -hmm. This is the great dean of the American theater is now at USC, sort of overseeing the artistic end of the program. And this young man named Frank Wildhorn convinced John Houseman to produce at the largest expense they'd ever had in the history of that department up to that point, a show that Frank had written when he was 17, 18 years old, whatever, called Christopher. And it was um, a show that when you listen to it, the beginnings of Frank Wildhorn and what his abilities are as a composer were all there. 
the storytelling was not. Uh, it was a very young person's show. And it starred Chuck Wagner, who was at USC at the time. Chuck, who eventually went on and did over 1,500 performances of The Beast on Broadway. And he was in uh, Les Miserables. And he, he's been all over the world with uh, his ability to sing like no one else. And also a woman named Madeline Smith. And Madeline went on to star in All of Me and Funny Farm and all kinds of different movies. She was an urban cowboy. And they had me operate the board. And after opening night, from then on, the next two weeks worth of performances, Frank Wildhorn would come up into the booth, which was up high above the stage, and watch the show with me. And... I would sit there and rip the show apart and tell him how bad it was <laughs> to his face, to his face. <laughs> well, he, you know, he was, he was a 19 year old kid, but, it, <laughs> and so he, but he had a really good sense of humor about it. And I would rip things because I would say things that were funny. It wasn't like I was just being mean spirited. I was saying things that were cutting and, and um, uh, sarcastic and he would laugh and laugh and laugh. And we got to talking and we talked every night for the next couple of weeks. And he finally said to me, is this what you want to do? You want to be in lighting design the rest of your life? I said, no, I'm, I really want to be a writer and a director. And he said, well, what have you written? Well, there was a class at USC called Experimental Theater, and I had written for it, which, by the way, they didn't produce, but I had written and submitted to Experimental Theater a show called Aesop Over Easy that was seven of Aesop's fables in rhymed verse. And I said, I'd written that. And he said, let me, let me see it. So I gave him a copy of Aesop Over Easy. And he came back the next day and he said, you're a lyricist. I said, I am? He said, yeah, you're a lyricist. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, because not many people write in verse, that's no, for sure. Right, yeah. So right. what made you want to write in verse as opposed to being a more contemporary playwright? Fun. <laughs> it was just I don't know that many people would say coming up with verses and rhyming would be fun, but it certainly is like a puzzle putting it together. I don't think you'll find too many. Well, I shouldn't say that, but I don't think you'll find too many poets, uh, lyricists, people that work with words in rhymed form or even not in rhymed form that will tell you, I do this because I hate it. They tell you they do it because sure. it's fun to do. Right. And so we started working together because he thought that I could write lyrics, which was uh, nothing that I had thought about doing at all. And uh, once we started working together, we started talking about, well, what can we do with this? Because he had a dream to be in the theater and I was clearly already in the theater. I had a degree in the theater yeah. and I wanted to be a writer and I love musicals. It wasn't like I didn't know musicals. I knew them quite well. And so we started thinking about what we could write together as a show and we, we took a page out of Andrew Lloyd Webber's book where he had produced, I believe it was Jesus Christ Superstar as a double album early on before it was ever on stage. And they used that as a springboard to get them into, you know, he and Tim Rice into the theater. And so we decided to write a double album based on the life of Julius Caesar called The High and Mighty Caesar. Was it Frank's idea to do that? And so he then... It, it was. And, and and so did you ever actually produce an album of no, any of these musicals you no, created? We, okay. No, we produced a uh, a demo recording of it with Frank playing the piano and Chuck Wagner and a young man named Joey Burns, the only two voices singing everything in a, oh, wow. in a, in a studio, but yeah. just a demo, just so that we had a recording of it. And in fact, I still have that recording. Uh, and it was not good. It will never see the light of day. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you have to get the kinks out, so to speak. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing at all. This is this, by the way, is a theme in my whole life. I go into lots of things and I have no idea what I'm doing. I just want to do them. Mm -hmm. I go do them until I either fail and walk away or I do them until I become good at them. One of the two. And so the, we started working together. He was already writing pop songs. He had a variety of different people he was working with who were sort of well entrenched in the pop music business. And Frank is a very uh, good salesman and he can sell himself to all kinds of different people. And so he was able to work his way into eventually getting a, a deal with Chrysalis Records mm -hmm. uh, for pop music. And so that was funding his ability to think about writing theater, which, as you well know, uh, is not exactly the 
a normal pathway to riches unless you just get stupid lucky. Right, unless you write The Next Wicked or Fan of the Opera, one of those, and, yeah. And how many of those get written every year? You know, not not many. So uh, of the shows that get produced on Broadway every year that succeed, that actually make their money back, you know, there were probably a thousand or more that were written that didn't get anywhere. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You and Frank wrote not only that Julius Caesar musical, but then you also did another one about the Russian emperor Nicholas II. Nicholas and Alexander. Yeah. Right. And then there was another one about Rudolph, the, the last crown prince of so the Rudolph has actually had a Rudolph has actually had a life. Right, right. It's actually had a lie, but these were some of your early works that you yeah. and Frank worked on. That's correct. And each of them are about rulers. They're about people, you know, historical <laughs> figures. What was the, the fascination around these subjects? So here's the, here's the key to anyone out there that thinks to themselves, how am I going to do something that has a, something, some grit to it, some bite to it? We just went to the public domain. So we just looked for ideas that were in the public domain. And that way, we didn't have to pay anybody or go through lawyers to obtain rights or any of that stuff that many people have to do. Because we knew the overwhelming majority of musicals that have been produced, certainly the memorable popular ones, come from some underlying source. Right. And so there are always going to be rights issues involved. Well, we were two young guys that, you know. I didn't have any money, that's for sure. Frank had maybe a little bit more than me, but not much. And he was a history buff. So we started talking, well, what's in history that would be interesting to do? Not having any idea whether it would have commercial uh, availability or not. But So we also did, yes, the show on Nicholas and Alexander was called The Last Czar. And Rudolph was based on the famous uh, son of the last emperor of the Habsburg Empire was Rudolph. Uh, and he, it was a murder mystery, basically, because he had been married off like they all were. They were all arranged marriages back in those days. And uh, he was in love with a young woman. And uh, his father, you know, didn't approve. And he allegedly wound up killing her at his hunting lodge at Meyerling. It's the famous story of Meyerling, where he allegedly killed her and then committed suicide. But there are many people, if you go and do the research on Rudolph, it's quite interesting. There are many different versions of what people say happened, that he's, he actually fled the country and wound up in South America as a cattle farmer. And you know, there are all these stories about what happened. So we did that. Well, when Frank and I broke up, Rudolph was only partially finished. And so he eventually finished it with Nan Knighton and then later Jack Murphy. And the other thing about these historical dramas is that the story is also written. I mean, yes, you had these various theories about what happened to Rudolph, but overall, their life story is there. Well, it's there. It's already written. You just have to kind of formulate it into a more dramatic narrative. That's the key to why so many musicals succeed when they do, is that the public is already somewhat familiar with the story. So I have a, I have a theory that's based on lots of people saying something similar and I've, I've had many people disagree with my theory and but that is that the underlying story enables a first-time audience to have some familiarity with the material when they have to work their way through hearing music and lyrics for the first time that frequently people don't get the lyrics on a first hear through 
Yeah. They don't hear, they can't understand all the words. They don't get it or it's too loud and they don't, whatever it is. Yes, you have a story that actually makes it easier to write because it exists, but also I think it helps the audience. So it's a twofold thing. And what was it like working with Frank? What was the your relationship like as writing partners? So we were not just writing partners, but we became best friends. And when we weren't writing, which was often, uh, we were hanging out together. So I was at Frank's house, I don't know, six days a week. Uh, and uh, we we worked very closely. In fact, uh, Jekyll and Hyde was first conceived and written in an apartment in Westwood, California, near in L.A., Westwood near UCLA. And he had a, an, a little tiny upright spinet in a corner of his bedroom, and that's where we started to conceive Jekyll and Hyde. Now, Frank tells a different story, which is not the story that I know. Uh, <laughs> okay. Frank likes to say that he came up with this idea while he was at USC and that nothing happened to it. He's been reported in many interviews and that uh, it, nothing happened until he met Leslie Brickus in 1988. And so that sort of uh, takes away all of the eight and a half, nine years that I worked on it. And through two different versions, through a version of it that almost made it to Broadway in 1988, through uh, two very different versions, keeping just one song, and that was Murder, Murder, which exists in the show to this day. Uh, and uh, it, it was, you know, conceiving that once and then letting it go away because we did a, we did a demo recording of that, too, with Chuck Wagner uh, in a studio with three other voices, four voices and Frank on the piano. And it just lay fallow after we did that because it was not a good pass. And it was six years later. So 1980 is when we started working on Jekyll and Hyde. And six years later, we started working on the second version of it, which ultimately became the underlying version of what we now know as Jekyll and Hyde the musical. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, one and the same on opposite sides, took a town on a terrible ride. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde A curious tale I have to tell Of good intentions Gone straight to hell And with that 1988 version, the, the one that almost came to Broadway, I'm curious, what was the initial steps? How did you both or one of you get in touch with Broadway producers and theaters in order for it to start that path? So the initial uh, version of Jekyll and Hyde fascinated a man named Howard Stark. Howard was at one time the VP of uh, ABC Dunhill Records, and he took an interest in it, and he's the one that paid to have the demo made. And he brought in a variety of people to listen to it, and you know nobody was buying it. Uh, and so that's when, why it went away. We, we only did it because we were interested in gothic horror, and only because Sweeney Todd had been out two years before. Mm -hmm. Sweeney Todd was a new show back then. So we decided that this was, we wanted to focus on this because we thought, okay, well, this will be entertaining if nothing else, and it will be bloody and gothic and fun to do. So again, there's that word fun. I think if you're not having fun doing it, there's something really wrong. Well, yeah, and, and Jekyll and Hyde, it's such an outlandish story, and you have this central character who's actually two characters, and just the transformation that goes there. So, I mean, you, you have a lot of drama already part of the story. So, most people think they know the story of Jekyll and Hyde that Stevenson wrote. Most people think they know it. They think they've read it in high school, or they've read it at some point. And what I have discovered over time is the majority of people that think they know that story have never read it. If you read the novella, it's a short book. It's only about 100 pages long. It's in three sections, or three and a half sections. It's from John Utterson, who was uh, related to, I believe, Sir Danvers Carew in the book, and that he was somehow related as a friend to Jekyll. It was from Hasty Lanyon, who was a fellow doctor like Jekyll. And then there was a Jekyll's version of what happens. There's only a mention on a page of a woman, and it's a maid, and there's a little girl in the story, but there's no romance. There's no plot. It's plotless. Nothing actually really happens in a normal um, storytelling way. Uh, it was the first time in the history of literature that I'm aware of in which 
uh, the notion of this split personality or bipolar personality or whatever it is was ever discussed, the underlying stuff that Freud was also doing at the same time in the 1880s. Freudian theory was only happening at the exact same time that Stevenson was writing Jekyll and Hyde. Hmm. So we had to concoct a story out of not much. There's no plot to hang your hat on. And most Broadway musicals, at least up to that time, and I think to a large extent to this day, most of them have some kind of a romantic love story in them. It's part and parcel of what musicals do. Not all musicals, but a pretty significant number of them. And so how are we going to do that? Well, like you said, you've got one man who's actually two, and you then concoct the two women. In that case, the two that I created were Lisa and Lucy. Lisa stayed Lisa all the way through the 1995 double album with Anthony Warlow and Carolee Carmelo and Linda Etter. Uh, and then by the time it got to Broadway, Lisa got turned into Emma. So so we had to we had to create that. There was nothing there. Uh, and some people will say, have said to me over time, well, you're just using what's in the movies that were out. And the truth is, I hadn't seen the movies. So I think that what we did was reminiscent of that, but I think it's the natural way to go. If you're trying to make a, a love story in the middle of this other problem, the problem that he has where he's tried the chemical on himself and he's turned himself into Hyde, uh, and he can't get out of it. He's trapped. And so it's a, it's a perfect story to have this love triangle. Right. And that's when, because when Frank and I were talking about what shows to write, our next thing after last czar, what, what are we going to do next? Well, let's do something Gothic and horror. So we looked at Frankenstein, Dracula. We thought about the Wolfman. We thought about the mummy, all those we went through. We also uh, very seriously talked about, this is in 1980, doing a, a musical of the Phantom of the Opera. This is seven years before Lloyd Webber. Hmm. And we thought that'll never work. <laughs> yeah as a creator you have to be able to see it the vision has to be there right and it doesn't yeah. matter if and, and, and for you and frank you just didn't see we it. didn't yeah. no we didn't see it at all but we definitely saw as soon as i said jekyll and hyde because it was me that said jekyll and hyde so that's why i'm saying frank likes to say he came up with the idea at usc no he was already out of usc uh jekyll and hyde uh was my idea and it was you know here's this opportunity to do this love triangle and he then lit up like a rocket and he went okay that's a story we can work with that because frank as if you know anything about frank wildhorn's music he loves a big ballad he loves power ballads that's his forte and he went off i'm you're gonna think i'm kidding i'm not gonna i'm not kidding i'm not being hyperbolic he, once we decided that was what we were gonna do about 48 hours later he calls me on the phone. And he says, I've got all these songs. Come on over. And I went, what? We didn't even know what the show was. We just knew it was Jekyll and Hyde. It wasn't. And in those days, it, we called it Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the musical. We had that big mouthful. And I went over to his, to his uh, apartment and he had <laughs> he'd written something like 10 or 12 song, pieces of music, not no lyrics, yeah. pieces of music. These big, bold, brash-sounding things, which is what he likes to do. And I found that a little intimidating, mainly because I didn't know what the story was, and he already had songs, which I think is kind of a little bit ass-backwards, but that's the way it worked. Well, but at the same time, yeah, then there's pressure on you. Now you have these 10 or 12 songs or bits of song. Now you have to create lyrics to them or, or write around them. The, so it presents a double-edged issue, which is... If you know what the story is and you write the songs to the story or the music to the story so that it fits in context with what you're trying to tell, I think that's a little more straightforward and a little easier for the person who's writing the words to figure out, okay, here's what the story is. Here's what the words will be. Now write music that makes this sing mm -hmm. versus you've written a bunch of music that you don't know where it's going. And we were shoehorning it into a story for better or for worse. And so that pr presents this dilemma for you, the wordsmith. Well, okay, 
how do I take this music and make it fit to the story? And fortunately, in many cases, it we it just worked, uh, at least on that pass. And again, that first pass was not a good pass. Now, what was the biggest difference between that first version and the second version years later? I would say it was the second version was far more refined. The storytelling was more refined. We took much more time. We wrote that first version really fast. We had that first version, I think, in about six to eight weeks, which is oh, wow. which is really fast. And and it showed. And if I go back, I, I can pull the old manuscript up and look at it and I go, oh, this is it it had promise, but it was not great. And then the second version that we wrote, we spent eight months, six days a week in his studio. He had a big studio in his house and with the grand piano, with me standing on the end of the grand piano and him playing over and over again what the songs were, uh, creating the the libretto for that show, we took our time. And the I think by that time, so from 1980 to 1986, I think he got to be a better writer of music and i think i got to be a better writer of words of lyrics of dialogue although ultimately it proved to be uh you know when we finally not got enough. to the end of the day not enough <laughs> is correct right. that's a good way to say it uh but we were better at it and then what then happened you asked earlier how do you get to people so howard stark was the first guy but then the second guy who was even way bigger than howard is Frank, and I don't know how, because I wasn't privy to it, I don't think at that time, he somehow knew or had been introduced to a man named Milt Oaken. Some people in the music industry will know who Milt was. He's no longer with us. But Milt owned uh, a the largest publisher of sheet music, independent publisher of sheet music in the world, called Cherry Lane Music Publishing. And they eventually, many, many years later, you know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe more, uh, they were bought out by BMG. But Milt's claim to fame was that he had found John Denver. He was the publisher of Peter, Paul, and Mary. He was the first publisher of sheet music for the Beatles. And mm. so he was uh, a powerful guy in the music industry. And Frank knew him. And we went to Milt's house when we had the first half of the first act of Jekyll and Hyde written. Went to his house in Beverly Hills and sat down at his out-of-tune piano. And Frank and I used to perform the show. He would play the music and he and I would act it out and sing the songs badly back and forth because neither of us, we both could carry a tune, but you wouldn't call us singers. And um, we played this the first half of the first act for Milt. And he flipped his wig. He said, uh, how can I get a stake in this? And he's the one that seeded the first money of what eventually became what people think of as the 1987 demo. And and we he brought in a guy named Harold Thaw, Hal Thaw. Um, he helped uh, find us a management company in New York that was going to be the general manager. And that took us off to the races where we wrote and wrote and wrote and then people said, well, okay, I guess you need to keep working on it. Uh, as time goes on, uh, they said, it's good enough for us to bring into New York and maybe take to Broadway. This is in 1987. Uh, and they brought in a director, a guy named Andre Arnott, who gave us lots and lots of notes. And we had lots of conversations. And I don't know that it took us to a better place, but it, things definitely changed. And by the fall of 87, uh, I was sitting in the Promenade Theater in New York watching the show being cast. We had a star. It was Terrence Mann, Terry Mann. Uh, Andre Arnott was directing. Uh, and in walked a young woman who had just won Star Search named Linda Etter. And she sang Somewhere Over the Rainbow, a cappella. And every hair on my body stood up. The <laughs> tone in her voice was unreal. And that's sort of where Frank began his relationship with her. Uh, and the problem was we were having that audition about a month after the very famous 1987 stock market crash. And the money was all being funded by a single company out of New Zealand called Qtron. 
And when we got to January 1st, where the money was supposed to be in place, they had already backed out because they had lost their shirt in the market. And so at that point, the show collapsed because people didn't have any confidence in things and they weren't able to work through things and now they didn't have any money and so on. And the show collapsed. And mm. uh, when the show collapsed, uh, I guess it would, Frank took it upon himself to go seeking some other way to take the show forward. Because it was around 1988 that he found Leslie Brickus, who would go on to, to then be with the show. Was this collapse of the Broadway version have anything to do with your departure? No, it didn't. No, the, the, I'll give you the sequence of events. So Frank had a manager at the time, a fairly well-known manager named Hilly Elkins. Hilly Elkins also produced shows on Broadway. He produced The Rothschilds and Calcutta and all kinds of different things. And in March of 1988, Hilly had set up three meetings in one week. Uh, Frank and I played the show for Alan Carr in his house in Bel Air, who is best known for having produced Grease. He nodded his head, thanked us, and that was the end of that. We then played the show for Jimmy Niederlander in the lobby of the Pantages Theater in Hollywood. Uh, and it was at that point that... Uh, Niederlander talked to Frank about whether he'd be interested in writing the Scarlet Pimpernel. And then mm. several days later, we played the show for Leslie Brickus in his house in Beverly Hills. And uh, at that point, and I didn't know it because I was not in the loop, which is one of the problems that I had back then, uh, I was escorted to the door at the end of the performing. And I, I, Brickus said, thank you, shook my hand, out I went, and Frank stayed. And from that day forward, uh, I was no longer involved in Jekyll and Hyde, though I didn't know it till a couple of days later when um, my attorney called and said, uh, this is what's going to go on. Brickus wants to join the show, but he doesn't work with anybody. And so you'll have to step aside. And that was the beginning of my being removed or replaced from Jekyll and Hyde. Interesting. So it seems like it was almost a coup in, of some sort. Well, you can call it a coup. I've never used that word. I've never even thought of that word. Um, I, I, I was definitely usurped. <laughs> I, right. I was definitely... I, I guess I used the word coup because it seemed knowledgeable to possibly Frank, but definitely to Brickus, that there was something else that could happen and they decided to pull the trigger and make it happen. They, they made a decision that uh, for whatever reason, without ever talking to me about it, that the work that was already there wasn't sufficient to get it to Broadway for real. And so the, somewhere... With Again, without my knowledge, a decision was made prior to my getting to Leslie Brickus's house that they were going to move forward. What they needed, because we didn't have the whole show recorded anywhere, they needed me to play it for them and you know perform it so that he could hear it. Mm, but, but that, again, that was with, without my knowing what was going on. I was... Uh, you could call me naive. That would be the best way to say it. I was completely wet behind the ears. I didn't know what I was doing. I, again, this is me falling into things. Uh, back then, I had never been uh, produced, so I didn't know what that was like. I didn't understand what was going on behind the scenes. And so uh, from that perspective, if this were to happen today, things would have turned out very differently. While this episode is only the first half of my interview with Steve, subscribers to Why I'll Never Make It already have the full interview in their feeds. To join those subscribers who are supporting this podcast and helping produce future episodes, go to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe, or just look for the link in the show notes. Another benefit besides early access to full episodes and bonus content is not having to listen to any ads either. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How did this changing of the guard, so to speak, how did it affect your friendship and relationship with Frank? Killed it. That was the end of it. Uh, I think he actually wanted to continue to work on the the original title of the, of Rudolph Affair Meierling was Vienna. He wanted to continue to work on it, and I, I, I couldn't see my way to it at that point because he had done me the opposite of a solid and had not involved me in the conversation and had not been a friend and had not been what I thought of as a solid partner at that moment. And uh, it's something that I... I have never practiced that kind of thing where you, you know, abandon someone and don't tell them. Uh, not, in, not in any major relationship I've ever had, that's for sure. And so it was foreign to me. It was, it was difficult to deal with for me. I imagine so. And now you had mentioned that it was a lawyer that called you up and, and told you that your days with the show were, were done. I assume then there were legal ramifications that happened after this because your sure. your name was all over everything. Sure. Well, Frank and I had the contract, and uh, that contract had to be uh, dealt with. And so, yes, the lawyer that was my lawyer was also Frank's lawyer, which was an issue later on that, again, my <laughs> yeah. naivete did not allow me to see. Uh, my lack of experience didn't allow me to see it. And, yes, there was a good long year of negotiations on and off before I was replaced with a supplemental contract uh, that made Brickus the author of the show and removed me from it. And in light of that, of course, I received um, uh, rights to certain credits and to uh, royalties, et cetera. So knock wood, the show has been a little on the successful side. For me, as people ask me, I always describe it. It's, it's the true definition for me of bittersweet. It's a bitter experience I went through, which I'm way past. You know, I've had a really good, really good career and a great life. But the sweet part is it's paid off handsomely. Um, you know, the show's made more than a billion dollars around the world. It's been translated into something like 30 languages or so. So I... I can't complain about it anymore. One time it was easy to complain. <laughs> it's really hard to complain about it. Uh, it's been very good to me. It's the the biggest, longest, most uh, massive karma in my life for 43 years now. And it's not going away. It continues to be performed all over the world and, and uh, here in America. And so uh, it is... It is a gigantic part of my history that uh, that I don't control anymore. So somebody once asked me, what was it like when I saw the first performance of Jekyll and Hyde? You're, you're taking my question, Steve. You're taking my question. <laughs> I was just going to ask you that. Yes, go so ahead. The first time I ever saw a production of the show was in 1990. Hmm, what year was that? It was 1996 in... At uh, the Orange County Performing Arts Center, when it was on the very first ever tour with Robert Cuccioli, Christiane Knoll, and Linda Etter. And it was early on in the tour, they came to Orange County. I lived in Southern California at the time. And I went to see the show. And I had been told in advance that none of my words were left. And when I saw the show, I was completely floored by how many of my words were left in the show, how much of my story, how many of my characters. It was essentially my show that they had done an edit on, that they had revi re revised over and over again to get it to there. And they'd done many different things to it. It was not the same exact show that I had left them, but they did not throw the baby out with the bathwater. So the question that I was once asked was, how did you feel about that when you saw it for the first time? And I equated it to, though I don't have any personal experience with what I'm about to say, I equated it to um, giving birth to a child and 
then the child shows up. You don't see that child. The child's taken away from you. And then you see the child at the age of 14 or 15 for the first time. So it was a very strange thing for me because I was completely and utterly connected to this show. And I was absolutely disconnected from what I was watching. So it was, mm. it was out of body for me. It was an out of body experience to see it for the very first time because I'm, I didn't know what I was going to see. I wasn't privy to any of the rehearsals. I wasn't privy to the scripts. I wasn't, I was not part of the creative process anymore. So uh, it was a, it was shocking in many ways, both good and bad. And it was like seeing a grown up child that you didn't, you'd only known as a baby. Mm. Strange. It's strange. And I've seen you have pictures with several of the, the cast members sure. as it's gone through its various productions over the years. I would assume that you have gotten to know your child a little bit better. Obviously, you know, as you said, you're making residuals, but now you, you know the child a little bit better. Well, we're almost 30 years out from it <laughs> finally having a life. Right. Because the very first production of the show was at the Alley Theater in Houston, and I did not see that. I did not. I was not invited to that, so I didn't go. Uh, and they also did a workshop of it in 1992 in New York that I also didn't see. Um, that was a, apparently a failure. That's the word that I always got back is the 92 workshop was a big fail. Uh, and, um, you know, I have gotten to know the show quite well. I've seen many productions of it. I've seen it in many different places. Uh, I've seen really great professional productions of it. And I've seen not so great local little mini productions of it that, you know, they do their very best. And it's, it's fascinating for something that you created at one point so many years ago to then go and see people doing it today. And rarely have I ever seen a performance of it where the people in it weren't really into it. They love the music. They love the show. Uh, of course, the show has many detractors. Do you know this? The, the what happened with all the critics? Do you know that whole thing about the original Broadway about production? the Broadway production in ninety seven? Ben Brantley went out of his way, out of his way, to create a review that had not a single word in it that they could pull out and put on the marquee. So you know that's that's the whole thing about Broadway is is they're not looking for their opening weekend; they're looking for ten years. So they're looking for for reviews that give them pull quotes. Of some kind, even there wasn't even the word Linda Etter, brilliant singer in a bad show. So the word brilliant wasn't even used. He purposely crafted this review that you couldn't use anything from. And the show was reviled by most of the critics. I mean, reviled. But the Jackies, which had been in place since 1990 when it was at the Alley Theater, right. they kept that show afloat for almost four years. They would go up and down Broadway saying, you got to go see that show. You got to go see that show. And so thank God for the Jackies. You know, they made Yeah, they Yeah, made I mean, happen. it has a rabid, rabid following. Mm -hmm, that's does. for sure. And with regards to the revival in 2013, did you see it? It only lasted a month. I saw you, it. And, and what did you think of that iteration? Because they had done some revisions here and there. Yeah, as um, Constantine Maroulis, who starred in it, uh, liked to say, it was a revisal, which is an interesting word to use. Uh, the, the answer is, I think that they made some errors that then created even more bad feelings in the critical world. And it just wasn't good. It was, it was okay. They tried things that I think were brave and interesting to try, but for me, they didn't work. I will tell you what the biggest, the single biggest issue with the show, and they knew this, I know from talking to people that went to see it. They knew this issue from the first performance of it when it was because it went on tour before it ever got to Broadway. For whatever reason, for because again, I'm not involved, they decided in their wisdom that that show was going to have a rock and roll style edge to it and that it was going to be loud, like mm -hmm. this is Spinal Tap 11 loud. And it, people were turned off by it. I can tell you people were turned off by it. That's not what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear the songs sung like they wanted to hear the song sung, not like it was in a rock and roll show. And 
I think it was it was a brave choice that didn't work. That's what the main problem to me was. I think the performances were great. Uh, I think some of the staging was a little um, not appealing to me, but that's that's neither here nor there. That shouldn't kill a show. I think what killed the show is that they turned the music into something that it wasn't. They also did one thing that I just didn't understand at all, and that is they took Murder, Murder and turned it into murder. And they took it from an upbeat, almost a march, into a slow, uh, I guess, like a dirge. And Mm. I didn't understand that choice. That was a tonal choice, and I didn't get it. In my opinion, from my experience, because I now have a pretty heavy-duty experience in terms of analyzing shows, having written a book about how to create the stories for shows, you don't want to go into your act two opener in most musicals today with a slow song. Yes, I've been in a few, especially new musicals. There was one I did last year specifically that opened with a a very kind of abstract ballad, very, very slow moving. And I think it was just kind of a dreary way to begin act two. So you go to a movie, and by the way, movies and musicals have share an enormous number of things in common. Not movies and plays, movies and musicals in terms of structure and how they lay out. When you go to a movie, When you get to your midpoint, which is where most musicals end at the midpoint of the story, uh, they don't let you out of your seat. You move on to the next thing in the movie. But when you get to a Broadway musical, you have this thing called intermission, and the show stops, and people get up, and they go to the bathroom, and they smoke a cigarette, and they get a drink, and then they have to come back. Well, they leave the space of the show in their mind. The show disappears for them for a bit of time. And if it's any good, they are eager to get back to see what happens next. That's the whole thing. So you have to leave them at the end of your act one, wanting more. What's going to happen next? And if you come back from intermission and you don't, what I describe as grab them by the lapels and drag them screaming back into their faces, uh, you have a real chance of losing them. And I think that may have in part been what happened in 2013, uh, that we, it just didn't grab the audience back. And that's an issue. That's a, that's a, it's not a technical issue. It's an artistic issue. And then it becomes a commercial issue. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a narrative. I mean, you're a writer, you're all about the ebbs and flows of, of characters and story beats. Uh, you're all about coming up to a climax, coming up to a resolution, you know, twists and turns. And and so a musical has to do that. And and it is one of the things that, that writers have to take into account that intermission, what that does or does not do for the, the flow of the story. So that's you're, right. you're right. They have to, they have to take that into consideration. That's right. And murder, murder was a really good act to opener. You know, because murder, murder, right? So it it had a kind of a, a, a you know a, an upbeat feel to it, and it immediately gets your attention. And there was choreography and lighting, and it just drags you back in. It pulls you right back, and there's people being killed. And, you know, it br- brings you right back in. Uh, and so if you slow it way down, it's still there, but it's no longer got that thing that just grabs you by the throat and says, here, pay attention to this. And so I I do believe that's part of what happened in 2013. I mean, do I know exactly what happened? No, because who does? Stay tuned for the second half of my conversation with Steve Cuden in the next episode. And don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe, or just look for the link in the show notes. Well, that about does it for me. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast, which is a production of WinMe Media. Background music used in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman, and the Jekyll and Hyde song you heard was provided by Steve Cuden. Be sure to join me next time as Steve and I talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.